Hey, I'm Gem Supernova and welcome to my DIY handbook. So I've learned so many things throughout the years on my journey as a freelance creative and sometimes I just really wished I had a place where I could go to hear the experiences, the processes and the decisions of other people like me. But most importantly, I really wanted to hear the lessons and the mistakes. So that's what this is. Each episode, I'll be sharing a lesson that I've learned along the way. I'll be honest in sharing my stories of when things haven't gone right and the solutions I've worked out. I'll be joined by a host of inspiring guests who have either been on a similar journey or had the answers right away. We'll be discussing how to build a team, persistence, the power of no, evolving and so much more. Disclaimer, this podcast was recorded at the end of 2020 and the first few months of 2021. So if you hear references to last year, don't worry about it. So this episode is all about IP, intellectual property. Now, don't be thinking, oh, that's not a bit of me. I'm going to be switching off. Don't do that because we all have ideas. Now, maybe you've been in a situation where you were like, I thought of that. I thought of that first. Maybe in your work situation, someone has taken credit for one of your ideas. Or maybe unknowingly, you've given away a great dynamite idea. So I had to learn a tough lesson about who I give my ideas to and how those ideas are protected. So I thought for this episode, I wanted to catch up with my friend Zubin Irani, who's a lawyer and runs a management company and label called FAM. He looks after an artist that you may or may not know about, an artist called Georgia Smith. Zubin, welcome to my DIY handbook. Um, I'm feeling honoured to have you on this podcast for many reasons. Um, One, your mind as a businessman. I'm always sort of inspired by uh, what you've done within the music industry, which we're going to get into. And two, also knowing you as a person, knowing that you're a very lovely person. (laughs) And three, this is not something that you normally do. Nah. So I'm lucky. Yeah, first time doing anything like this, really. I appreciate it. Yes. And like I said, I made a New Year's resolution to just do more stuff that makes me a little uncomfortable that I haven't done before. And yes, I thought a nice chat with Jams is a good way to kick it off. Let's do it. So this episode is all about intellectual property, um, which is something that I had never, ever heard about in school. It's something that I never even heard about sort of in college. Um, I may have seen it on a contract once, and I don't think I actually even questioned it. Um, oh, okay. And the first, the first time I heard about it, it was with someone that you actually work with really closely. Yeah. An amazing man by the name of Uche. Uche. Now, Uche used to work uh, at BBC Radio 1 and 1 Extra. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he's always had an incredible mind, very, very forward thinking, sometimes almost you know, into the future, so people always catching him up. And that's kind of exactly what happened with me. We were sitting in the BBC and we were sitting in the sort of like communal area mm. and he was just, you know, he'll jump into one of his sort of monologues and he's like, <laughs> you know, Jams, the future is all about IP, you yeah. know? That's the real, that's the that's that's what's going to be more important than oil. That's what's going to be more, you know, oh, more wow. valuable than anything. You know, it's all about IP. And I was like, what is he talking what about? What is IP? <laughs> what is IP? And he's like, intellectual property. Mm. So I was like... What things in your mind? And he was like, "Yes, they that's the future." From the mind, yeah. So yeah. yeah, so I guess let's start off. I mean, you came from a law background, so yeah. t- tell me in layman's terms, like, what is intellectual property? Yeah, sure. Intellectual property has been the future for a minute. Like, it's mm. just people are talking about it more now and becoming aware about it now. But like, it dates back centuries. Like, copyright would have first become a thing like around the 1700s. So it goes back. But now people are starting to understand what they are, the value in them. Um, 
And so uh, I'm looking at it closer when looking at contracts, looking at what they're giving away, looking at how they're dealing with their own intellectual property. Um, mm. What is intellectual property? So intellectual property is like an umbrella term and it covers off the expression of certain ideas and information. So it's not just an idea. You can't just have an idea in your head and be like, all right, I own that intellectual property. You've got to express the idea as well, which means it's got to be like written down, recorded, filmed, whatever. Like you've got to, it's got to be fixed. The action of it. Mm. It's got to be fixed into something. It can't just be in your head. You're like, oh, I thought of that. Prove it. You can't. But that's why it's even if you are going to fix it, email it to yourself or have some way of having a date on it just in case a dispute comes about and you're like, no, look, I had it on this date. So, yeah, it's intellectual property. Umbrella term covers like the expression of certain ideas and information. And for what we do in our industry, the most important one is copyright. Um, that's the one that will come up most often. And within copyright, there's different forms of copyright. So, again, for our purposes, music is probably the most, or will be the most relevant musical copyright. And so that's like your chords, your melodies. Um, and then you have uh, literary copyright, which is like books, magazines, articles, but also lyrics. Lyrics fall into literary copyright. So if you're writing lyrics, that's, that's copyright. And um, then there's artwork. So, you know, like album artwork, that, that would be protected by copyright as well. So those are the most relevant. There's a couple of others, but for our purposes, those are the most relevant. And um, and copyright just like arises when you create it. So even if me and you right now we're like, all right, come, let's write a song. Um, jams. You got any melodies? You got any chords? You're laying down the chords, laying down the melodies. I'm like, yeah, that's sick. And I'm like, all right, let me write some lyrics to this. And then I write down the lyrics. We could do this now, and whatever we end up with, we own that. And we did it together, so we jointly own it. And that we don't within the UK at least. You don't need to register it. You don't need to do anything with it, as long as it's fixed, like we spoke about before. So we record it, we write down the lyrics and email it to ourselves. Um, then that's what we have to do for the copyright to exist. And then we can go off and do what we want with it. We can, we can do a publishing deal, if you want, um, and assign those rights, license those rights. But we are the first owners of that copyright. Yeah. Um, there's nothing that we need to do to register it. And a copyright basically just gives you the right, the exclusive right to make copies of it, to to sell it to exploit it like that's that's what rights we would have in the song or whatever it is that we created the music that we created and so generally the author of the copyright is the first person who created it so again in this instance me and you we created this piece of music so we own that and that's that's what the law says now there is an exception to this which people should be aware of like one of the main exceptions which is if you're employed so if you're an employee yeah and um and you create a piece of intellectual property as part of your employment so it has to be as part of your employment then your employer owns that that's what the law says. Now, you can change that in your employment agreement. You can say, look, I get it, I'm your employee, but this bit, this can't run. I need to retain my intellectual property. But you've got to actually have that in your contract if you're going to retain it. Otherwise, the employer owns it. And, right. and it has to be in the course of employment. So, for example, if you're like a cleaner and you're at work, you're cleaning, but you're also coming up with lyrics, you're writing, um, you're writing music, that's not in the course of employment. That's completely separate. That's nothing to do with your employment. Um, so that wouldn't be owned by the employer. You keep that. But if you're like a computer programmer, for example, and you take work home with you, 
If you're still doing work at home that is in the course of your employment, so it's still part of your employment, your employer owns that. So yeah. be aware of that because it comes up and people are yeah. like, oh, my employer owns that. I didn't even realise. I didn't even know. I mean, that's exactly kind of, I guess, a sort of thing that um, happened to me. So when I first got one of my early shows on on, on the BBC on, on One Extra, mm. I came up with, I uh, got given a Saturday and Sunday afternoon show and they said to me, you know, we need some features that are kind of like a bit more lifestyle, you know, okay. maybe something more fashion-led. And I was like, okay, you're talking to the wrong person because I don't <laughs> do fashion. Um, that's not going to happen. But I do have a lifestyle idea. You know, I okay. had this idea from early, from when I first sort of got into Instagram and seeing loads of young people starting their own businesses. I was really inspired by it yeah. and I, I coined a phrase like the DIY generation um, and I was like yeah do you know what I would like to do actually is I had initially had the idea as a documentary to do to follow these young people but I thought okay let me reversion it for radio what I could do is then I would interview you know a host of different entrepreneurs and creatives and it would be a podcast style interview on the radio to find yeah. out about how they have done what they have done so we launch I give them I give them I give that idea to them um, we launch it now, you know, and it runs, um, I guess, successfully for, for a couple of years. And with it, they wanted to do more things with it. Like um, we did some kind of like road shows where we took it to different um, cities and we did work with young people. Now, that all sounds amazing when it's going yeah, good, that yeah, you don't really yeah. think about who, who owns it, right? You don't yeah. think about that. But then what happens when you're no longer on the same page? So basically I had this desire to really go away and make DIY Generation into a podcast in its own right. And we're talking about five years ago now before, um, you know, I guess the boom of podcasts and everyone having a podcast. And I just knew that it'd be a popular piece of content. And they didn't see the vision that I saw. And I got a lot of radio silence when pitching it, which does happen. But in a normal world, you would get radio silence and then you'd go away and be able to do it yourself. Now, because I put that idea on air, I no longer owned any part of it. I didn't own the name. I didn't own the format. Um, so I couldn't go away and make it a podcast on my own. And when I left weekends, I had to leave DIY Generation there. Because so did they own the name? Well, the DIY Generation bit. They own the name. They owned the format. Because that's the thing. The format know. is tricky. It's like which bits of this are actually protectable? Because yeah, there's, I there's... guess it's the bit, the, mostly the name. I guess mostly the yeah. name and mostly the remit, but I just didn't know that. And, I, I, you know, it was, a, it was a real sort of like turning point for me to basically to remember to hold some stuff back because, yeah. it, it, you know, this is hence, this, this is why this podcast is called the DIY Handbook. Yeah. It can't oh, be DIY Generation. Wow, okay. I had to change it. I had to reversion it. I had to reformat it Remix to it, yeah. get my own independence. But that was a real, yeah, I mean, I just would have never known that, you know, yeah. what could, could, could happen. And it did, it did happen. Well, okay. Couple of things. So you were an employee, right? Uh, self-employed, but I guess it's a weird, that's a it's big kind difference, of weird how it though. works. That's a big mm. difference. That's something I think people should be aware of. So, at, at law, as an employee, your employer owns the intellectual property if it was if it was created in the course of employment. As a self-employed person, as a contractor, the reverse is true. So if you're self-employed and you're contracting with the BBC, you retain ownership in your IP unless the contract says something different. So there's what, there's what right. the law says, and the law mm. says what it says if you're an employee they own it if you're a contractor you own it and then there's the contract which can vary what the law says so you can agree something different you're like all right i know what the law says that but my, this contract needs to say i own that 
Um, now that's where I want to bring in an amazing story from yeah. Charlie Sloth. Now, like Charlie, Charlie Sloth, man like Charlie, <laughs> Charlie Sloth, big, if you don't know where who Charlie Sloth is, he's a big hip hop DJ, yeah, broadcaster, yeah, yeah. businessman, he does it all. He's been about for now, years, jump for off years, TV days. Yeah, like. jump off TV, he actually had his own online um, sort of series, sort of like yeah, a yeah, 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 comedy yeah. series. Yeah. <laughs> he did everything, um, innit? Yeah, yeah, and it was amazing. But when he got onto the BBC, he had already had this idea of Fire in the Booth, mm, right? Mm. And for those that don't know, Fire in the Booth is, it's, it's really simple concept. It's a great concept. You go into the booth, the yeah. sort of quote-unquote booth, into the studio, yeah. and you spray your bars. Yeah. But what he was able to do with that idea was share it with the BBC in a sense that he owned the idea mm-hmm. still, but he would put it out on the radio and on their YouTube but it was still his. So okay. he had a thing where it would go on his YouTube before it went on their YouTube. Okay. And it was just like, I was like, wow, that's how you do it. Charlie's smart, man. I've known Charlie. I've worked with Charlie. And you kind of see how his brain works. And he's always a couple steps ahead. What I reckon, I'm speculating here because I don't know what actually happened in that scenario. Yeah, we don't I'm, know. We don't know his contract. But I know the story. What, <laughs> I'm speculating that he was self-employed. So he was engaged mm. as a contractor which would have meant he would have retained his IP. Also, there's another, there's another bit of intellectual property we can touch upon, trademarks. So I reckon he would have trademarked the, the fire in the booth, that, that slogan, that phrase. So he would, he would have been able to license the use to the BBC. He's like, I own this yes, trademark. You exactly. can use it for these purposes, but I own it yeah. and I keep it. What's a trademark? A trademark is like a sign or a symbol or a phrase which... Um, is used to distinguish your products and services from another person's. And so, for example, Apple, you get the Apple. Apple, the name will be a trademark. And then Apple, the logo is also a separate trademark. And so no one else can use those trademarks. They're registered as trademarks. Mm. And that's to distinguish a product. Like if you pick up an Apple phone and you see the symbol and you see the name, you know that's Apple because, um, because of the trademark. And so... And that's the difference, by the way, the difference with trademarks and copyrights. Copyrights, like I said, they just arise. You don't have to, in the UK, you don't have to register that stuff. But trademarks, you have to register. You have to go off. You have to do this application. It's complicated. You have to pay fees. It's, it's, there's a process there. But once you've done it, you own that trademark for a period we of time. We trademarked, baby. You know what <laughs> I mean? You could even like Jam Supernova. You could trademark that. It's, tra- it's already trademarked you've done it. now. Now uh, I've learned. You're ahead of the game now anyway. But you have to learn from your mistakes or learn from like exactly. Charlie. So I imagine that's what he did. And then he was like, all right, you can use this, but it's my format. It's my idea. And, and so I licensed the right to use the name. But when I leave, this leaves with me. Hmm. Where do you think, you know, not necessarily around Charlie, but maybe sort of in the industry, like yeah. or maybe even for yourself, you know, you run a you run a label, you run a management company that you you own, you know. Do you think that because I didn't have the know-how, I wouldn't have known. Maybe yeah. I was at a point where I was just grateful to be there. I'll give you all yeah. my ideas. I'd be like, verbal Dude. diarrhea of all my ideas. I know but what you mean. Where is that turning point for people? Like maybe for you with fam, you know, with the knowledge that you had from a yeah. law background, I mean, you could have gone into any company really. Yeah, and I was, and, I, and people asked me to. Um, yeah, as a lawyer, but as in, I had to train as a lawyer and, and, and practice as a lawyer and acquire this knowledge. And then I was like, all right, I can call that bullshit early now. So people can't get me to agree to things without me fully understanding that shit because if, I, if, if you smell something if you're like, nah, this isn't right. 
Mm. I, but a lot of people don't have that luxury. Like you said, they're grateful to be there. And even me, as someone as a lawyer, it, when, when I was sent my employment contract as a lawyer, I wasn't trying to make any changes to it. You're like, <laughs> just sign it. Just sign it. That's what they're giving you. You feel weird. You're like, I'll do it for other people. But for myself, am I really about to go and make changes to this ag- agreement? You just, you just like, accept it almost. Like, I have to. Yeah. Um, and when you kind of step out of that mindset and you're like, you don't have to accept it. You can ask questions. Like, and if, if you're working with the type of people who are just going to take the opportunity away from you because you're asking questions. Because you ask a question. They're not yeah. the right people to be working with. Be like, all right, fine. Like, I get it. Sometimes you've got to take an L. Sometimes you've got to take some licks for the opportunity. I get that. I've done that. I've had to do that. But hopefully you get to a point where after you've done that a couple of times, you can, you can call some stuff out. And like I said, if you're working with the right people, more often than not, they'll be accommodating. They'll be like, yeah, I get that. Let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. Maybe there's a compromise. Rather than, mm-hmm. no, take it or leave it, which I hate. I hate that whole attitude of take it or leave it. I'm like, hear me out. It doesn't work for me. Like, can we talk about it? Yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit more about FAM then. So as a company, all the, things that, all the things that you do, yeah. Um, FAM, I, it just kind of like... It just came about. It just happened. There was never like this super master plan. Like, all right, this is what we're going to do. And it is a we. There's a bunch of people. And it's like, it's a family. That's, that's where the name kind of, that, that was where the name stems from. We always just had these real family vibes. Like, it was behind, we like listen to music, eat food. It was always food and music. Like, those were like the glue. And just like real family vibes. That's even where the name like, came from, kind of like food and music. We were like, we're always just surrounded by food and music. Oh shit, fam. We're like family. Oh, okay, this kind of, this, this just happened. Like, we didn't even have to sit there, like, let's brainstorm an idea. It just happened. And even with, how did fam start? Yeah, we, well, with Georgia. But with, again, without any plan. I was a lawyer. I was a lawyer. I was intrigued by the other side of the industry because as a lawyer, you understand how it's put together. But, I, you know, I'm creative as well. I like doing the other stuff. And, um, and I did as a lawyer. I kind of did stuff the lawyer wouldn't do. I was hooking people up. I was putting people together. I was sending out other ideas, dabbled in management, like helping people out. But I was a lawyer and that's what I did. And that was my role. Um, but as a lawyer, you're kind of always being sent music and you're always sending people music. Like, what are you on? What are you listening to? What's new? What's good? Um, every week, like inundated with music. But never like, I was never looking to go into management or whatever else. Not at that time. Like, it was a dream of mine when you were younger. But I was like, this is what I'm doing now. Um, I never even knew you could do like the transition from law to management. I came into the music industry. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know how it was put together. I was kind of like, all right, I just need to make this work. Even getting a job as a lawyer, that was like a long, long hustle. But I just kind of just got into it and I was like, all right, let me figure this shit out. And then as a lawyer, if I'm going a little way back, as a lawyer, I, I, there was this guy, do you remember Richard Antwi? Yeah, R.I.P. Richard Antwi yeah, was... Um, right? Yeah, real figure in the, in the British music industry. Yeah, and that was someone who... He was the first person I saw uh, who I was like, oh, wow, look at this cat. Like, he always used to strut in, like, calm, like, and cool. And, um, and we used to chat about music, and it was always... Like, it was different to having conversations with other people in the office. You know, they like music, but chatting to Richard about music was just different. I was like, look at this guy. Well, he was a lawyer. And now he's, like, manager, publisher, like, label guy. Like, he's doing it. I, I didn't even know you could do that. I didn't know that was a transition you could make. So 
I suppose that was the first step into it, just that mentally being like, oh, wow, okay, this is something that you can do. And seeing Richard do it, like you said, RIP, like, I really rate that guy. He made me realise you could do it in the first place. And so that gave me that, that, that nudge that I needed. And so fast forward as a lawyer and being sent music all the time, but never really being like, all right, I need to find something. It was just like, I'm doing this, see what happens kind of vibe, isn't it? And, um, and then Uche, my guy Uche, good friend of mine, and he was on music early and he's always sending me music, like every week, like a couple of links at least. And I was like, yeah, this is cool, this is cool. And one random day, must have dropped a SoundCloud link in my inbox. And I was like, SoundCloud link, yeah? And I was like, Rawr. And I've looked back at the emails, because even I'm like, how did this all start? Um, and I was like, oh, I really like this. I really want to keep tabs on this. And, um, and, and, and this did. being early well, George Smith. Yeah, Smith's. like early, <laughs> early, like covers mm. and mashups. Um, and then, this, then, yeah, I saw a couple other bits, brought her down to London. She was 15 at the time and uh, did a couple sessions, just started cultivating a relationship with her. Very aware she was in school still, finished school, like come down to half term basically, which is what she did. Did sessions and um, then went up to Warsaw, met the dad who was super cool. I was like, all right, he's, and he was a musician. Like, he was in a band and he was encouraging her from an early age and and it just kind of happened. Even that, like, I remember, like, it was probably at least a year in and Georgia was like, are you my manager? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I suppose I am. But we never even labelled it. We just started doing it. And that happened. And then and then even that, that was like a two-year process. She was six, she started coming, she was 15 when we met, 16 when she started coming down to London, finished off her exams and stuff. So we're just doing stuff around it in half terms. And then she moved to London. And... Um, it was a good, like, two years in it, like, just getting her writing, sort of letting her dip her toe into the industry without being thrown into it. Like, this is how it's put together. These are the kind of, kind of people. This is how it works. It's giving you the knowledge, which I think is invaluable. You throw an artist into it and you're like, don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of drag you along. <laughs> so you, you, you don't really give them the autonomy to, and, and, and the framework to understand what's going on. You're just kind of dragging someone through this industry, being like, don't worry, we got this, we got this. As of her, we were like, you know, you need to understand this stuff as well for yourself. Understand your processes, understand how you write, what you're like in a studio, how this is all put together, what's publishing, what's records, what's live. And it was wicked. And then we dropped Blue Lights, January 19th, 2016. Damn. Now, I remember, I remember how that campaign began, you know, and how the, the excitement around her. I Even also calling remember, it a campaign is mad because we just uploaded it, it on campaign. We uploaded yeah, literally, call it literally, we're like, should we do it? We did it. Upload it on SoundCloud. And we're like, I call it a campaign because I'm a nerd. Um, yeah, but I mean, because it was so small fry to us at the time. We were just yeah. like, that's the campaign. But maybe I'm thinking of it in hindsight as a plan, as a strategy. But yeah. I guess what I mean is that I loved the fact that when you did drop that record, Anyone that had played it um, organically, yeah. played it, you came and did a meeting with them. Yeah, how people you came and met, <laughs> Yeah, you came and met me at the BBC one yeah. Saturday after my show. Yeah. And we, you, sh you sat and you, you talked to me about what was coming next. Like, do you think yeah. that your experience um, as a lawyer and the things that you knew, I guess, sort of from that side of things... Do you think that that helped you when it came to working with a with a younger artist, like you said, but also yeah. in thinking about the way that you you wanted to do it, staying independent? Absolutely, absolutely. You know? as a lawyer, 
And as like an artist friendly lawyer, I love artists and like I'm friends with artists and and I did a lot of record deals. But the majority of the artists who did these record deals, you won't even know who they are because nothing came from them. And I and that really used to jar me. I'm like, all right, all these deals and and a lot of these artists are just forgotten about or given up on. Like quick, early. Oh, that didn't connect. Let's do another one. That used to jar me. I'm like Guys, if, if, this can't be it. Like, if we look at some of the biggest artists in the world, your Prince, Bob Marley, David Bowie. They had more than they, 18 months. <laughs> dude, they were like three albums in before they even had anything resembling a hit. And yeah. But then, because they were allowed to develop and grow and, and now they're propping up labels with their catalogues. And so I'm seeing all these deals being done and I'm like, nah, you can't rely, you can't rely on anyone else to get this up and running because... If it doesn't go the way they want it, they're going to lose attention and shift their focus. So the plan was always, let's do it for six months. And, but, but, but we had a plan because of that. And we met like a lot of people, a lot of people like Target, Come Down, Ada, everyone. I cooked for Ada. And, <laughs> and um, I was just like, let's do this in a real nice, friendly way, but meet the people. Let them know there's a plan here as well, like a 12-month plan. We, we've got blue lights, but we're planning to the, rest next, to the rest of the year before chatting to any label or anyone. And... Um, Absolutely, being a lawyer beforehand and seeing all of the deals that fell to the wayside and all the artists that were just kind of left behind, I was like, that will never happen on my watch. And so we made a plan and we stuck to it and we just kept extending it. We're like, well, this is going well, let's just carry on. Ah, this is going well. And I was getting all these calls from labels. You know, we never had one offer from a label for Georgia because I told everyone, don't send an offer. Because once you send an offer, people think you're engaging like in some kind of back and forth now. Oh, we sent you off. Did you get the offer? Do you want to reply? I was like, don't send me anything. And <laughs> never got sent one. I was just like, cool, at least people listen. And now, but I was getting these calls like, are you ready yet? Are you ready yet? I was like, you know what? We're kind of enjoying it. We're going to carry on for another six months. And people were getting pissed, man. I remember because I was in it, you know, working in a, in a major label okay. and um, I would see Georgia on the train to go to work. Yeah. So they'd be like, how did you speak to her on the train? I was like, well, we didn't really speak Dude. about that. They'd be like, can you, can you speak? To, I'm like, I don't know. I don't really feel comfortable grooming a young woman on the train. Yo, you say we, would that. Chat, we would chat, but, you know, I didn't want to overstep. It. it was a nice way to spend time on the train with someone. Yeah, but some mad stuff happened. People contacting her parents and shit to circumvent us because we were like, we don't want to engage right now. And they were like, desperate, like, what can we do? Even that stuff, I, I, that's... Yeah, that's too far. It's but not bl- cool. I mean, you can, you can see the success. You can see, like, looking at... I mean, I always, like, I use I use you guys as, a, as, a, as an example when talking to, to younger artists, like, looking yeah. at the numbers, times in the numbers by the money. I'm like, look, this is this is how you can do it independently. And it's it's massive. It's huge. I use yourself. I use Tom Mish um, as an example yeah. as well about building catalogue, being consistent with the releases, building those um, sort of streaming numbers. Yeah. Skeppy. AJ. But yes, yeah, Skep, Skep, I mean, AJ Tracy is another one. Skeppy, I mean, that's, yeah, you, yeah. I love, look, I, like, that's my kind of stuff that I nerd out on numbers, yeah. money. JME, who's doing it before yeah, anyone? JME, yeah, I mean, exactly. We go like, way back. Masterpiece. <laughs> there was like yeah, I, I, I want to. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Talk to me. Maybe was there anyone that you can think of? You know, other than those ones that we've mentioned, that like a, yeah. a public figure that that kind of blew your mind with how they had ownership over an idea. Could be in music. Could be in business. It was really like hip hop because labels were never really a thing. Labels used to get slated. Like when I'm listening to Tribe Quest and they're talking about these shady labels, you're never like ah. Oh. It never. There was never anything kind of attractive about it. But um, 
And then you started seeing kind of Bad Boy, Death Row and, and No Limit. And you're like, okay, these guys are doing it differently and they seem to be doing it really well. And they're talking more about the business side, but they're, they're involved in the business side. They have more control, it would seem. Like you kind of delve deeper and you're like, oh, this deal, oh, they did this, they did that. Master P, I think, was an early adopter of, of just doing a distribution deal and then setting up his label and doing everything himself. And and really kind of like buying into the artist that like he 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 was good at the way he ran his business and he was he was friendly and he he stuck by artists he blew artists up and I was like yo this guy Percy Miller that was his name because he was on NBA Jam back in the day as a basketball player and I was like I was just really impressed by the way he carried himself and by the way he conducted his business and it was kind of that that, that piqued my interest in the business side of stuff like the hip hop stuff and then you kind of start. Obviously, when you're younger, you would have seen Prince when he was a slave. You know, what's this about? Again, hating on his label. And and um, he always used to go on about ownership and ownership and all of that. But his main gripe, like, there's ownership, but what his main issues were, were control. Because, you know, how are you going to have someone tell you when you're putting your record out? and Or what it should sound like? Or this won't work on radio. Mm. I don't think he liked any of that. It's Prince. And... Um, and income, man. He would have been in a record deal with Major where he was probably on 15%, 1.5. And he's thinking, I'm doing all of this work and I'm getting this. So I, I, I was very impressed at the way he spoke out about this stuff and, and highlighted these issues. So, yeah, he was someone else I really looked at like, what a G. Uh, Tech Nine was another rapper I used to read about. People, people probably don't even know about Tech Nine, but he's probably richer than most rappers who rap about being rich because he just owns... Uh, he even owns his own tour buses and then leases wow. them out. He's taken it to a whole different level, but I was always like, this guy, he's interesting. And then in the UK, JME. JME was doing it before it was a thing. He was doing the independent thing and like distributing and dropping off records and... No PR, no this. Like he, he did his own thing. And then Skepta followed suit. Skepta obviously being around that. And Skepta had the huge buzz at one point. Like he got the call signs. He went to America on his own backpack, just hustled. Like he put in the work. People don't even realize that like he was out there on his own, like hustling, got the call signs, did the grind, came back, was obviously independent because no one was trying to fuck with him before that. And everyone was like trying to get a piece of Skepta. And I was his lawyer at the time. So he's seeing all these deals and all these numbers. And and he just like, it's so easy to get swayed when someone waves a check, yeah. waves a check in front of you. You start thinking about stuff. Oh, I can pay off Mumsy's mortgage. I, I can do this. I can do that. I, I get that. I get that. But it's also what you're giving up in return. And I think he got to a point where he was like, nah, you know what? But all of these, I just want to do my straightforward deal and he did it and everyone's like oh he's this he's that like you know that chatter in the industry and I'm like nah go on great so yeah he was someone else I really looked I looked up to I was like fair play for, for, for standing firm with that and um and also for not listening to the naysayers like because people in the industry they fear that like and and well, it's a disruptor, isn't it? It's a disruptor, a disruptor, and they try and, mm. like, I went through it. I had some dark days. You know, like, you get these different versions of it. There's the one where they put their arm around you, and they're like, you've done good so far, but, you know, if you really want to take it all the way, you need us now. You can't do that. And even, mm. like, trying to throw shade on Skepta, like, yeah, it's, you know, you know Skepta did it, but you want to be more successful than that. I'm like, well, really? Like, Skepta killed it. And um, 
So I don't think your argument works there. And then there's the other end of it where people are like, how dare you? You're arrogant. You're going to fuck it up. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, because it's like trying to put fear in you. That's it. You know, you, you mentioned Master P. Yeah. There was one um, amazing skit on Solange's album, right? Yeah. And this kind of, this sort of falls into what we're talking about and with the people offering lots of money and lots of deals. And there's a skit and he's talking about, you know, how he was selling, you know, sort of music out of his, out of his car and things <laughs> yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. And, you know, he, he, his grandma, he would go and see his grandma and she had you know, been a former former slave essentially yeah, oh, okay. and um she had been offered a deal for i think it was a million pounds mm. and he, she you know he she was like and his brother were like take the deal you know it's a million pounds take the deal imagine all the things yeah. that you can yeah. do yeah. with a million pounds and he was like but that's all he thinks i'm worth he only thinks mm. i'm worth a million pounds he will never think i'm worth more than a million pounds mm. and i am worth more than that so i'm not going to take this deal sort of break that mentality down what does that mean like you know, is there something more? That's knowing your worth and knowing your value. Yeah. Like, and he, I, I, there's that element of it. Like, you're steadfast. Also, I'm assuming he didn't need the million. Like, he wasn't like, some people are in situations where like, I need the money. I need the money now. Yeah, I can't wait enough, two years. Yeah. And that, but that, that's exploited because then you wave a check. You're like, all right, I'll take the check. What do you get in return? Like a piddly little 20%, 15% royalty in return. Also, the thing with a check, it's a lump of income. It goes into your bank account. You're going to get taxed on it. You're going to pay your commission on it. It starts dwindling straight away. And when it's just dwindling, it's like a lump of income that just starts dwindling. And that's not your goal. That shouldn't be your goal. Like, that's, that's cool. But what you want is you want streams of income coming in. You know what I mean? So you don't get as much up front, but you work with people who are like, no, we're going to do this. We're going to break you. We're going to like be dedicated and obsess over this because we want you to have a long-term, stable career. You go into an agreement with that, with people like that. You may not see as much at the beginning, but you'll have a career. You won't get through that advance. And, then, and also by that point, maybe you have expenses and outgoings and you're like, ah, shit, I can't afford this anymore. Whereas when you start streaming and start making income coming in that way, you're going to bed and you're waking up a little bit richer. Whereas if you just have a lump, like an advance in your account, that's not happening. So he knew the power of that and he knew the value in that. So he didn't take that deal. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to do this myself. I'll give you a bit, but I want to do all this stuff myself because I know these artists. I care about them and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in. I even see how Snoop talks about about Master P, like he cusses out Suge Knight because he's like, it's just different mentality. But Master P, he looked after us, he looked out for us. Like he was about money, but he was about sharing in that success. Yeah. You picked up on something that, um, you know, about the, it's a sort of um, the, the lump of money versus the long stream of money. Yeah. And I think that also falls into like the instant gratification of something being successful or something mm. taking time. Now, like thinking about like, say, for example, like any idea now that I, I have had since that experience, like on yeah. with that, with the idea, I always knew like, right, again, with this podcast, I can go into any company and probably get them to pay me to make this podcast but then they would own the podcast right yeah so i'm not gonna you know they're gonna own and, it and even or, with podcasts or, i don't yeah i don't know how you don't get streams from podcasts either streaming income. i mean it's still, yeah there is i mean it, it can eventually but for me yeah. it was a, but again so i might have got instant streams whereas starting yeah. this as a grassroots thing in which i own mm. it i'm paying for the producer the the trademarking of it, the artwork yeah, of yeah, it, the, you yeah. know, the, you know, all of it is, is mine. So whatever success that of it, that happens yeah. will come back to me. 
Yeah. And so whether I partner with someone later in the line is something that I have started, I have trademarked, that I can now license. So it yeah. might, it's, it's the slower journey, but it's in the that, longer run, yeah. it's, it's the, it's, I think it's the best thing. And it's the same sort of with my label. Yeah, you start yourself and then you can do things on your own terms. And you, when you go into a partnership with someone, you're going to have to give something up. Like, well, everyone needs to be happy. Everyone needs to feel comfortable. It's just what you're giving up and how much you're giving up and what you're keeping. But, um, but if you go into it, kind of like you're hot for a minute. And that's the other thing. People are like, oh, you've got, now is your moment. Like, take the check, do the deal, because you're not going to be hot in a minute. There's that other kind of fear that you instill in people. If you're like, no, I'm good. I'm going to see this through. I'm going to do this slowly but surely. Um, build up my shit and then and uh, uh, while you're doing so have a good team around you as well man people who understand the vision and, and want to be part of it break off a piece wherever you need to break off a piece but you control that shit yeah um, when do you think is a point that you as a you know not just in music but like a, any sort of person that has their own you know business or that they yeah. you know they monetize whatever they monetize when is the point that someone should think about collaboration or bringing yeah. bringing larger partners in Suppose you need to judge that for yourself. Need know what your limitations are, and what, know what you're good at, know what you're not good at, and know like how far you can stretch yourself, and and then and then move accordingly. So you know you, you bring people in as part of your close knit tight team. You're like, all right, what can we get done? And what are the most important bits to us? Because you figure that as well. You figure that out while you're doing it. And then you like get to a point where, all right, we need to scale up, for example. We've got our team here. We can do these things and we do these things really well. So we don't want that to change. We, for example, with a musician, we create the music ourselves. We, we don't want someone telling us this isn't going to work on radio. I don't care. And you're not going to decide whether this works or doesn't work. We're going with this. So you want to retain that kind of control um, when your music comes out. You never want someone to have the ability to tell you your music can't come out at a certain point. Nah. It comes out when I want it to come out. Um, so as long as you figure out the things that are important to you, that you are non-negotiable, like these things are mine, and then you figure out the bits, yeah, yeah, you know what, but this we can share, and this we do need some help on. Like you figure that stuff out along the way, and then you can put together a, an arrangement, a deal which works for you, and will have to work for the partner as well, because you want people feeling good in business. You know what I mean? Like yeah. just because artists have been exploited from the beginning of the music industry, like viciously and aggressively so mm. um so it's all tipping in the other direction that kinda there's still a long way to go but just because of that when you come to doing a deal with someone you first of all do deals with people you like that you fuck with and that you want to do business with and then figure out all right what's gonna you want everyone walking away from the table feeling good feeling happy um and so keep that in mind but just know what your non-negotiables are these things don't change these things are going to be as is. You cool with that? All right, then we can talk about the rest because we need help with the rest. I feel like you're such a, uh, you know, a real sort of needed person in, in the music industry and, and beyond and a great disruptor. So um, I really thank you for taking the time to come on thank the podcast you, and just sharing the inner workings of your mind. It's very inspiring. <laughs> thank you, Zubin. I appreciate you, man. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that was super interesting. I mean, Zubin, what what a guy. I mean, just hearing about law in a way that is so easy to digest. I've never, ever heard it kind of broken down like that. So many things that I took away from that conversation. One, nothing is ever free. 
two, that you are entitled to challenge your contract. We shouldn't be feeling so grateful to have been given a contract in the first place that we don't look for it, read through it and challenge it, and especially around issues of IP. And lastly, I think having the foundation stable, you know, he wasn't saying don't collaborate with other people, don't work with other people, but making sure you know what you and your people around you can do. And then when you do want to partner with, say, a bigger company who has more power and more money, really knowing your non-negotiables. That is so important. I've learned a lot. And I'll tell you something, actually. I'm glad I went through what I went through because I wouldn't be doing this podcast in this way right now. But I know that Jam Supernova's DIY handbook is all mine. Thanks for being here for this episode of the DIY Handbook. I've been Jam Supernova. And if you like what you heard, then just let me know. Leave a review, talk to me on socials, and please, please subscribe because there's more great information, stories, and advice to come in future episodes. This podcast was created by me, Jam Supernova, production from Amy Bennett, music and audio production from Sam Interface.